This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, now up to, to bat, Brett Boone. You've been a part of great Giants teams as a player, as a uh, as a broadcaster, at least four decades. Uh, started with the 87, the playoff run you guys had. 89, I know, I, I don't think you were on the roster at 89. You were on the team, though, correct? For that yeah, I had a, yeah, I tore up my uh, rotator in July, and I was done. I had great seeds. <laughs> the, the earthquakes here, Dravecki coming back, that, that unbelievable scene back then. Uh, I, I, I remember it. I was in the minor leagues, and I remember – uh, Dave coming back from the cancer, and then that happened on the field. You were there for that. Take me through what it was like when you were there as a player. Then when you went to the booth, the, the dusty years, the Barry Bonds years, which I played through. Uh, well, start with with you as a player in in San Francisco, being a Giant. We talked about Candlestick Park. Uh, that was hilarious to me. They only had a urinal in the dugout. We had to walk across the field. So so if nature called mid-game, it's like you got two options. You're either waiting at the end of the game or you're going to run across the field and go up into the clubhouse, which is under the right field bleachers. Or you could do the Lasorda and take a dump in the urinal. You could do that. I yeah. I, I never thought about it, but he did do that. I, I've heard that before. Yeah, he did. Um, but, look, I, I don't want to dog that guy because I loved him. When I first got to the Giants, I was disappointed getting traded there because I came from Philadelphia, which is – you know, coming from the Cubs, where we were not very good, to the Phillies, which I thought was certainly, the, if it wasn't the class of the National League, it was certainly the class of the East. And I just loved everything about it. It was the only time in my career I played in a one-team town, and I, I just loved everything about it. And then I got traded the next year to the Giants, and I didn't want to go because I knew the Phillies had a good team, and they did indeed. The year I left, they went to the World Series against Baltimore in 83. And uh, for the first three years I was with the Giants, it, it just spiraled until, as I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, 
uh, you know, we lost 100 games in 85. But when Roger Craig and Al Rosen came in and turned things around, it is the most important thing to me in my whole career. It was what I'm most proud of, being part of the resurgence of an old franchise. And we brought back respectability and credibility to our fan base and really to the baseball fans around the country. And, uh, and then getting to the playoffs in 87 and certainly the World Series in 89, um, it was just, uh, you know, to watch the Giants fans are incredible fans. And, you know, they paid their dues for 40 years sitting in a, a dump at Candlestick Park watching baseball. And still they came. And then when we left in 1990, uh, or I'm sorry, and then we, when we left in 2000 and went into the new ballpark, it was almost like they'd been rewarded for all the, the, the nasty nights in Candlestick. So the decade of, of the 90s and the caliber of baseball that was played there, because of the work of Al Rosen and Roger Craig that set the tone for Bob Quinn and Dusty Baker in 1993 and to take those teams that they were just, you know, they, they were good teams. And then the Brian Sabian era, era started in 1997 and took it all the way um, into the 2000s. And it, it was just such a glorious time. And it was fun because the people were being rewarded with a great venue and, and the players loved playing there and visiting players couldn't get there. And it was just a scene. It was so much fun. And it is there today. I mean, it's, you know, what happened back in the eighties, uh, turning the franchise around, watching the, uh, the, the, the expectation grow through the nineties and then delivering in, in 2010, 12 and 14. Uh, it, it's, it's been unbelievable to be part of it. And, uh, you know, and Dwayne Kuyper and I, I mean, you know, we're like the oldest guys around and, and we've been able to see all of it from the start in the early eighties and uh, to where they are right now. And it's been an unbelievable ride. I, I was just on a San Francisco radio show and, and they were asking me, I guess they're doing a bonds documentary. He was asking me about those years and Barry and I was just kind of telling him my truths about it. It's like, I didn't like Barry as a player, as a, as an opponent. I'll tell you what though, when the game started, I didn't have, more respect for anybody than Barry Bonds, the greatest I've ever seen. Uh, you were right there, first class. Please, Crook, tell tell these people, tell my son if he's listening, how good Barry Bonds was for that period. I've never seen anything like it. Well, you know, I'm, I I watched Hank Aaron and I watched Willie Mays as a kid, and you know, I'm yes you know, a teenager watching him and whatnot. I, I don't think I could really truly appreciate somebody until I had the experience in baseball that I did being a player, n knowing what, what it took to be good. Um, <clears throat> just appreciating the Tony Gwynn's of the world that separated themselves with ability and, and, and determination. And then you, you come across a guy that was so completely unique because, you know, you, you're a third generation guy with your grandpa, your dad, and then, you know, the legacy that your brother and you carried on beautifully, I might add. Um, there aren't many guys that can lay that claim. And Bonds really essentially was a third generation guy. His godfather was Willie Mays. His father was Barry or was Bobby Bonds. So his whole life, he was sitting around a dinner table talking baseball, but talking at a level of baseball that far exceeded what the normal 10 or 12 year old kid would was privileged to. I mean, he was learning how to pick up pitches that a pitcher would tip when he was, you know, in the little league. And uh, by the time he got to the big leagues, 
I mean, he was a savant. His knowledge was higher than a PhD. And his instinct on the field, and I'm not talking in the batter's box, and that was an obvious. It was on the field as a player defensively. It was on the base pass as a runner. Everything that he did was better than the normal player, was better than the good player. His first step on defense, his first step on the base pass were so instinctive. And and you just watched him at, at the way that he played left field. He once told me that he knew in 1993, he says, yeah, I'm playing behind Bill Swift and John Birkin, both who had unbelievable sinkers, right-handed pitchers. And he goes, I'm playing in left field. And I look out and I watch Bonds play left field. And he's playing 10 feet off the line in left field. The gap between Bonds and the center fielder, you could have parked 14 Beacons moving vans lined up end to end, and you still would have had room to park another Volkswagen. There was It looked like nobody was out there. But yet, when guys would hit the ball, he would hit right to where he was standing. And I asked him about it. I go, what are you doing? He goes, look, I'm out there. I know this guy's stuff. I know this guy's swing. And I know if he hits the ball, he's going to hit it to me. I go, well, aren't you worried about looking like a fool if the ball hits in the gap? He goes, oh, hell yeah. He says, I'm leaning left hard thinking it's going to happen every time. He says, I know one thing. I have affected that guy's a bat from left field. And I thought about that. I said, well, my God, I don't know if anybody's ever done that, affected somebody in the batter's box from the outfield. Well, this is where his intelligence was. And and more often than not, you know, where he de- defended those guys because of, of Burkett, Burkett and the Swift stuff, it played off. It worked. And he would do a dozen of those things during the course of a homestand, let, let alone the course of a season. So watching him, I learned more baseball. I became better because I became more knowledgeable of the game because I got to see it through his eyes. And then, of course, when he got in the batter's box, oh, my God. That was like watching. I mean, what? I mean, for the most part, guys are usually average hitters or they're power hitters. Rare that you have a guy that combines both. Rare that you have a pitcher that combines the ability to control, you know, great stuff, you know, like DeGrom or, or Schilling or uh, um, um, who else? Uh, Clemens. I mean, it, it's just rare that you see that. Well, Bonds was the whole package. And on top of it, he could run. I mean, we've never seen anything like him, nor will we ever see anything like him. And uh, it was just an era that, uh, you know, we were privileged to witness. Nobody missed his at-bats. I don't care, man. You'd throw you you'd hold a four burrito dump like for two hours waiting to watch him hit. You would not <laughs> miss it. It was just the way it was with him. Mike, did you know did you uh know my grandpa Ray Boone at all? I met him twice. And uh it was uh you know it was fun because you know he was never allowed to say a whole lot when your dad was here. Your dad was showing him off, he was so proud of him. And uh, that's how I met him. I met him in Cincinnati twice when your dad was a skipper. Or no, maybe he wasn't. He was when did your what I forget the year, uh, but I met him twice. And uh, the thing that impressed me the most was how proud your dad was of him. It, 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 uh, believe me, dad's getting to that age now. You know, he's in his mid set. He reminds me so much of grandpa because grandpa and me were really tight. Uh, it just from uh, ever since I can remember, he was one of my earliest influences baseball wise. But <clears throat> talking about bonds, I'll give you a, I'll give you a quick story about him. He, you, you, 
I have to put it in context. The guys that played in that era, Gramps played from 47 to roughly 60, played with Ted Williams. He, he can't tell me enough Ted Williams stories, you know. Uh, he's he's telling Bob Feller to this day is the greatest pitcher that ever lived, and Gramps will tell you. You know, guys back then, they were very – they were very, uh, they defended their generation, not only in sports, but their generation in general. It was better than ours. You know, I remember coming out after games and Gramps would be like, ah, Randy Johnson's not that good, Bob Feller. And I'd say, quit with the Bob Feller, Gramps. But that's how grandpas are. And I appreciated that. And I loved Gramps for it because he was Gramps. I get a phone call. Gramps gets rushed to the hospital, and this is this is two days before he passed away. And we kind of know that that things aren't good. You know, I'm not getting good reports from the doctor, so I'm sitting in the in the in the office with him. And now, trust me, once again, let me preface it: he is the most proud man in the history of the world about his generation. He looks at me; he can't talk. He's writing on a, a pad of paper, and he says, "Brett, this Jake Peavy kid and Jake." Jake Peavy was going to be a rookie with the Padres. This is back then. He said, this Jake Peavy kid's got a chance to be good. I said, okay, I'll look out for Jake Peavy. And he said, and yes, you're right. Barry Bonds is a better player than Ted Williams. I lost it. Crook, I started crying. I said, that man's going to die any minute now because he is not coming back to face the wrath of me saying, I told you he was better. So I, I, everybody out there, and, and we have the debate, and that's why baseball is great. You know, we can debate Maris and, and Willie Mays and Bonds and who's the best. Well, really, it's tough to go generation to generation. But for Ray Boone on his deathbed to admit that Barry Bonds is the greatest hitter he's ever seen with his own eyes, that was enough for me. And, I, and anybody that tries to – to uh, debate that now, I said, you talk to Ray Boone. That's that's where I go. So I think it's pretty good. He was that good. I mean, I used to sit there, crew at second base, and even some of my best years, I'd look at my numbers on the board and say, those are damn good. And 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 I watched Barry get in the box, and I'd say, and I can't carry his jock strap onto the field. He's that much better than the rest of us. You know, and, and he saw the game differently. I mean, he just assumed that you saw the same – tips that a pitcher was tipping a pitch he saw the same you know move when a guy out of the stretch would commit to home and and create an advantage for a good jump at first I mean he just saw the game in a different way um we you know you know Barry you know he can be as aloof as anybody I've ever been around we would get him on a plane Kipe and I would as broadcasters, we would sit in the middle in the emergency row where we had the leg room and, and uh, you know, the players were in the back and uh, the coaches were up front. And then, so we had that, that area and bonds would, you know, we'd go from New York to San Francisco. He would come over and we'd start talking ball and, uh, and he would open up and he'd talk for six hours. I mean, it got to the point where Kipe would fake like he was asleep. So he'd go away. We just couldn't shed him, <laughs> but it, it was such an incredible conversation because of the things that he would come up with and the, and the knowledge that he had and the reference points that he had as to how he learned it, where he learned it from who he learned it. And just the, the, the privilege of his education that he, you know, was, was sharing with us. And we, we always tell you, you need to write, you need to do this. You need to let young hitters know all this. You need to write a book. You go, I, go, I will, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do a deal. But it was just such great, pure baseball. And uh, 
you know, and a lot of it came from, from Mays. A lot of it came from his father, obviously, but man, it was all good. It was solid stuff. It was just great baseball. Uh, 10, 12, and 14, the three World Series, unbelievable. I My favorite part of those is watching Bumgarner in the one year, most miraculous pitching performance I've ever seen. Steve Perry singing Don't Stop Believing in the Stands. That was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. I still refer to it on YouTube. Uh, I, I think it's awesome. Don't Stop Believing, and then you end up coming back and winning. But um, give me just a, a little rapid fire, what you remember about each one. 2010. Well, 2010, Giants had never won. I mean, it was 53 years of being in San Francisco, and they never won. So when this whole thing goes down, um, there came that point in time when you knew they were going to win it. You knew. You smelled it. You sensed it. Being around the game, I mean, you knew when when teams came together and they forged a uh, uh, that that dynamic that was uh, you, it was irreversible. And uh, and then you just stood back and you watched it. You watched the dynamic. That was not only in the in the in the bus or the airplane or in the clubhouse or the dugout, it it went up into the stands and then into the community. And the community coming together was the most powerful thing I'd ever seen. When it happened and when they finally got that last out in Texas and then game five and they became world champions for the ter- first time in San Francisco, it was like everybody in Northern California got laid together for the first time. It was the damnedest thing I ever saw in my life. And the parade down Market Street, it was it was unbelievable. And we were standing up there on the stair steps of City Hall, and we were looking out over a million people, more than a million people. And I'm thinking to myself, who in the history of mankind has ever done this? I mean, I felt like the Pope. And when everybody got t- quiet, when you got up to the microphone to talk, it just sucked the air right out of the sky and you could have heard a pin drop. And it was just an emotion and a feeling of adrenaline that came over to me. And I only played in one all-star game, which I thought was the player's most adrenaline I ever had in my life. It was dwarfed by the adrenaline I felt on that podium in front of that microphone, exalting this team and describing the, the emotion that, that overwhelmed all of us in Northern California and really around the country because we saw giants hats all over the country. It was it was incredible. 2010 was like nothing I'd ever seen before. 2012. Well, 2012, they started the the, the playoffs against the uh, five game set against the the Reds, and the Reds win the first two games. Now the Giants go back to to Cincinnati, and uh, and they have to win one game. The Giants hadn't won a series in Cincinnati in six years. And they, and they were lit. They had they had a great team. Dusty Baker had that team honed to a fine edge, and uh, and they win three and win the series. I couldn't believe it. Then the next series they go down three games to one, and it's game uh, five in in St. Louis. Giants are down, and Barry Zito's on the mound, and it's the bottom of the first inning, and there's the bases loaded, nobody out, and I'm thinking this is not going to end well. Before we got to the to the to the field that day, the St. Louis Cardinal fans were popping champagne out in front of the ballpark, and the Giants win that game. Zito goes seven innings, a shutout ball, and then they don't lose another game, and they go right from the Cardinal series into into to Detroit, and we saw Verlander and Scherzer. They're on the same staff. That team was just an unbelievable powerhouse, and they sweep them. How can you explain that? 
And again, I mean, it was almost like, you know, the parade, the parade was, wasn't as intense in 2010. It was wonderful, but I think there was a little bit of a disappointment in the Giants fans as they had no emotion. Uh, they had a four game sweep. They didn't know how to handle it. And then when they go into 2014, of course, it was the Bumgarner series. And that was the damnest thing I'd ever seen. You know, they, they upset a heavily favored Royals team. And, and then that, uh, and that parade was, it was just ridiculous because of, of one guy really. And what, what, what Bumgarner did and, and he brought, you know, Machisimo back to the starting, starting pitcher uh, position. Uh, it, it was just a total throwback. And so they all had different personalities, but they were all just so meaningful to, you know, to forming just the, the religious dedication that the Giants have today for this club. Yeah, and Boach, Boach was there for all three. And anybody that knows Bruce, it's just he's one of those guys. You know, he's just everybody loves Bruce. I got a chance to play for him one year. I just 2000 in in um, San Diego, but it seems like I played for him for you know when I see him now in an off season event, it seems like I played for him for a hundred years. It's just Boach in his ways doing it again in in Texas. It's really it's really cool to watch. Uh, before I let you go, I just your your longtime partner. Uh, you guys have been such an awesome duo for so many years. What does Dwayne quite What does Dwayne Kuyper mean to you? I don't even know. It's possible to say it's beyond a brotherhood. Uh, but he's my best friend. I love him. And, you know, my wife and I have been married for 48 years, and, and Kipe and I have been married since 1982. I always thought he was kind of a peacock when I played against him because, you know, he wouldn't wear his hat during batting practice, and he'd spray his uni on, and his hair was always perfect. And, <laughs> and then when I got together with him in 83, I just uh, saw the magic that this guy had in the clubhouse. I mean, he was there. He ran that clubhouse, and uh, he makes me laugh every day hard. 10 times and uh, just to be able to go through life together, you know, we have kids the same age and, uh, and just life experiences, you know, I mean, life is not always fair. And, uh, you know, to be able to go through it with somebody that, that supports you, um, you know, like your wife and, and Dwayne Kuyper, I mean, I, it's pretty unbelievable what I've, you know, my, my, my personal life and my professional life, what I've been privileged to have, the relationships I've had. So it's very emotional for me to talk about Kipe. And, uh, and I, you know, I, we call each other every day a couple of times, you know, and, and he'll make me laugh a couple of times. I mean, it's just, it's just that way. I mean, it's like being able to, to, to broadcast a game you love with a guy you love and broadcast it like you're sitting on a bar stool, having a couple of pops watching baseball. You know, that's kind of what we do. And I, you know, I, I'm an analyst. So technically I'm supposed to be, responsible for everything but with him i don't i don't have to talk about pivots at second base or you know how to bunt or what's better against this particular pitcher you know bunting down the third baseline taking one with you what, what are you looking for to get a good jump off this guy's move you know what i mean he's right there and, and and so we can talk ball which has kind of been i think one of the best things about our relationship on tv but uh, you get me going about him booney and i get quite emotional it, it's it's been awesome i mean me just you know i played through it you guys were there when i was there and and still going and i don't know you're one of my you're if not my favorite duo uh not that the fact that you're so unique the, the, the unique factor is that the 
feelings you have for one another after all these years, a lot of tandems don't like each other. It's just we show up in separate cars, we get our work done, and we go home. The fact that you have that relationship, I think, really comes across in your broadcast. Secondly, he's a hitter. You're a pitcher. You got more home runs than him, though, I know. Uh, we don't bring that it up. Ju- that's that's source subject, Booney. Don't say that. But it, but it's such a cool relationship, and it comes through in the broadcast. And you know it's a genuine thing. It's not because, you know, we are professionals, and, and we we can act professional whenever you need. But but I think that the true feeling you do have for Kype and vice versa, it, it's something you can't fake, and it comes through on air. Uh, still to this day, you're a pleasure. Uh, that All-Star game was 86. You won 20 games. Sam Fran, Wall of Fame. Uh, Mike Kruko, it's been a pleasure, man. Thanks thanks for coming on the Boone Podcast. This has been very cool and uh, great catching up with you. Booney, thank you. You know, I, I've always admired your family and uh, the class with which you've you played the game. Three generations are doing it the same way. Your brother entertains me nightly. <laughs> and, <laughs> and me. <laughs> and I'm proud to be on your on your podcast. Please have me back anytime. You got it. Thanks. And for all you out there, listen to the Boone Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company.